Hi, I'm Gavin Giovanoni, and I'm doing this research uh, MSLP podcast to discuss the latest results of one of the radiologically isolated syndrome trials um, that came out uh, earlier this week in JAMA Neurology. Um, you know, everybody is very excited that licensed therapies, and this particular study was teriflunamide, reduced the risk of somebody developing MS uh, when they had been diagnosed as having radiologically isolated syndrome. So radiologically isolated syndrome is when you have an MRI scan for another reason, for example, headache, or you going into the military and want to become a pilot, they always do MRI scans to exclude subclinical disease, and they pick up that you've got lesions that look like MS. And when you do a workup, you find that these people almost certainly have MS, but they haven't had any clinical symptoms. So they get diagnosed or labeled as having risk of radiologically isolated syndrome. And this is now the second trial uh, that's come out. So the first trial was presented last ectrams of dimethyl fumarate, uh, reduced the time to next event and the diagnosis of MS, and now teriflunamide, another licensed platform therapy. <laughs> to be honest with you, these trials have not changed my thinking about MS uh, a single bit because um, I would expect them to be positive because in my head, radiologically isolated syndrome is asymptomatic MS, and if dimethyl fumarate and teriflunamide working in MS, it'll work in risks. Uh, so it's not surprising to me. What I do find quite bizarre is that people still think that radiologically isolated syndrome is not multiple sclerosis. In other words, you haven't developed a disease. Uh, and this thinking is based on how we define MS because in my head, MS is a biological disease. It's something that occurs in the tissue, something in relation to the immune system. It's not what we would... Uh, it's, not, it's not a clinical radiological construct, which is how we define MS now using the McDonald criteria. Uh, and so therefore, MS begins long before you have your first clinical event. You know, what's happening in the brain and spinal cords of MS is the disease, and that happens possibly a decade before you have your cl first clinical symptoms or signs. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not surprised with these results. And so if you take somebody who has risk diagnosed and you biopsy their brains and send it off to the pathologist, they will look under the microscope and find the pathological hallmarks of what they call MS. And so I actually think this term risk is a misnomer. It should be called asymptomatic MS. Now, I am highly acutely aware that several key opinion leaders are concerned about creating a label of asymptomatic MS because not all of these people with risks or asymptomatic MS will go on to develop a clinical event and then get labeled with MS. Hence the worry that if we actually start labeling these people as having MS, we will be over-treating them and exposing them to the harms of disease-modifying therapies. Obviously, in this setting, it will be dimethyl fumarate and teriflunamide, which are reasonably safe therapies, in my opinion. Another argument they always put forward is that because MS is so stigmatizing, by giving a person an early label of asymptomatic MS will have implications beyond having just the disease. It will affect their marriage prospects, education, insurance, and that's possibly a, a correct, but that's on the assumption that nothing changes, and I'll come back to this later on in the podcast. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> You know, my counter to them is that I'm not surprised that not all patients with radiologically isolated syndrome or asymptomatic MS don't go on to develop a second event and get labeled with MS. We know from a large post-mortem study in Denmark done in the 1980s that about 25%, one in four people who at post-mortem had MS were never diagnosed in life. So they either had no symptoms uh, or the symptoms they had were mild and ascribed to something else. 
uh, or never severe enough to trigger a diagnostic workup. So yes, at post-mortem, a quarter of people um, who have MS in their brains don't have a diagnosis of MS. This tells you that there's a large proportion of people with benign MS that never get diagnosed. Um, another example of this is if you take siblings, brothers and sisters of people with MS, and you scan them, you, you find about 10% who have lesions compatible with MS, and this figure is much higher in twins. But we know that not 10% of them go on to develop MS. It's about one in, four, one in uh, about a quarter of that, about one in 40 go on to develop MS. So the majority, 75% who have lesions on the MRI that looks like demyelinating lesions, looks like MS, never develop multiple sclerosis. <clears throat> and so this question of is why do people with, you know, why do such a high proportion of people with risk don't go on to develop MS <clears throat> is an important one. Uh, and I, you know, I, would ask the question, could their immune systems be self-correcting, clearing the cause of MS, and are they curing themselves of the disease before they actually have their first clinical event? And that's a really important question. And so to try and explain this, I said a counterfactual. Let's assume, uh, and there's a reason why this might be correct, that MS is due to a mutant virus, a, a mutant strain of EBV, and this strain initiates the MS disease process and starts causing uh, lesions in the brain. <clears throat> okay, but however, before this individual presents with their first clinical event and gets diagnosed as having a clinical isolated syndrome or MS, their own immune system uh, finds the virus, attacks it, and clears the virus. In other words, they self-cure. <clears throat> uh, we have several an analogies uh, for this. Uh, you know, a small proportion of people who present with PML, progressive multifocal leukencephalopathy, which is due to the JC virus, get spontaneous recoveries. Their own immune system kicks in and clears the virus. And similarly, if you work in oncology, <clears throat> there are a group of tumors that can spontaneously regress and disappear. Uh, these are often called uh, disappearing tumors or vanishing tumors. Uh, and we think what's happening there, the immune system gets activated and clears the tumor. Uh, and this actually is one of the observations that underpins the whole field of immuno-oncology and the use of immunotherapy to treat cancer. And this has been a revolution in the cancer field. You know, how do we boost the immune system to fight the cancer to cure it? And we are seeing cures now occurring in certain cancers that were intractable to treatments in the past. Lung cell cancer, for example, melanoma, myeloma, um, uh, pancreatic cancers, for example. So there's lots of these intractable cancers that are, are now uh, responding to immunotherapy. And this is why I'm a big supporter of using EBV vaccines as immunotherapies in MS. In other words, can you boost your immunity to EBV, trigger your immune system to attack the Epstein-Barr virus, and hopefully uh, use that as a treatment to uh, manage MS or even cure MS. Uh, and that's why um, several companies are developing immune vaccines or immunotherapies to treat MS. Um, you may have heard that this company, Atara Bayer, they're actually not doing a vaccine, but they're actually giving patients cells that target EBV to try and treat the disease. So I posit that not all people with asymptomatic MS will go on to have a clinical event because their immune systems are finding and clearing the virus that causes MS. Now, the other thing is, are all these people with asymptomatic MS truly asymptomatic? And uh, I think, unfortunately, not. Uh, I think if you t interrogate these people, particularly with stress tests, you find neurological deficits in the majority of them. That's my experience. <clears throat> uh, if you send people with radiological isolated syndrome or asymptomatic MS for detailed neuropsychological assessments, about a quarter of them will have cognitive impairment in two domains. If you put 
uh, uh, gloves on them and you measure their fine motor tasks with their hands, they have deficits. Some of them, if you put onto a treadmill, develop fatigable weakness in, in terms of their uh, gait and balance. And so it's how hard you want to look. Uh, and I've been referred quite a large number of people with radiological isolated syndromes over the last 30 years uh, for assessments. Then when you interrogate and examine these patients, you know, the majority will have uh, either symptoms or signs to suggest that there has been damage or involvement of a pathway. So I don't know, you know, if this category should exist. You know, it's MS. It's asymptomatic because it hasn't caused symptoms in that individual. <clears throat> but when you look for it, you often find the, the damage that's been done uh, at a subclinical level. I think we've had a lost opportunity. My personal opinion, doing risk trials with established maintenance long-term therapies that don't change the natural, don't alter the immunology is a missed opportunity. I would have rather have seen a risk trial done with a safe immune reconstitution therapy, such as cladribine. Uh, my personal opinion is cladribine is safe enough to use in risk patients, and I think we should do a risk trial with cladribine. Uh, and the reason why I say that this is arguably the only way you can cure MS in the sense that you give a short course, it depletes the immune system, hopefully kills the cells that cause autoimmunity or, or allows regulatory mechanisms to reestablish themselves. So when the immune system reconstitutes, MS is in remission. Um, and that would have been a much better experiment, in my opinion, than using maintenance uh, immunotherapies or immunomodulatory therapies. Um, and I think there is a real strong argument to uh, treat risk with uh, a drug like oral cladribine, you know, try and uh, put them into long-term remission and also treat them very early before they've acquired too much damage uh, or allowed the processes of smoldering MS to set up shop in the brain and spinal cord. Um, I've I put into my, in the newsletter, um, the results of the Oracle study. This was a, a trial of oral cladribine in people with clinically isolated syndrome, and it was very effective at stopping uh, a second attack or the development of clinically definite MS. Actually, this is the best uh, results we've seen in a clinically isolated syndrome trial. And if you re-baseline these patients at uh, six months, you will, the people with cladribine did very well. I actually was involved in presenting the uh, follow-up, long-term follow-up in the classic uh, study, which we got back all the patients, as many as we could, that participated in the original oral cladribine trials. And of the CIS cohort, remarkably, 53%, more than half of the patients we could uh, trace, um, that were treated with cladribine had not had another event uh, nine and a half years after the last uh, follow-up in the trial. So that would be around about 12 years since their first clinical event. And that compared to only 20, 28% of the people who hadn't been treated with cladribine in the trial. So this is remarkable. You know, uh, over 50% of these people had never had another clinical event. And so the real billion-dollar question, and th this is a billion-dollar question because MS supports a billion-dollar drug, drug sales, did this early treatment with oral cladribine cure most of these patients with CIS? <clears throat> Unless we look for it, we won't find it. Now, a lot of my colleagues, again, um, not only my colleagues, a lot of the people in the MS field actually criticize me for using the C word and for daring to suggest that one day we may be able to cure someone with MS. And I think uh, we may have done this already in people who have been treated early with immune reconstitution therapies. I'm just talking about cladribine, yeah? But we've got similar cohorts who've had alemtuzumab and uh, autologous hemopoietic stem cell transplant. You know, some of these people are now are going 15 plus years in remission, stable, no evidence of disease activity. And the question I'm asking, do they still have MS? Or have we 
cured them of the disease and they are never going to get another attack. And that's a really, really important therapeutic strategy and a question to ask. Um, and also, if, you know, if we if we don't aim to cure MS, why, why are we doing what we do? You know, we should give up now. You know, we ha we don't want to label someone with MS and have them on a treatment for the rest of their life. What we want to do is label them with MS, treat them with a therapy that puts them into long-term remission and hopefully cures them of the disease. That surely should be our therapeutic aim in established MS. <clears throat> Maybe you disagree with me. Uh, I'd be interested to know what your opinion is. <clears throat> Now, this is really, really important right now because, um, you know, discussing what defines an MS cure is relevant to what's happening in now and in the future. And we're about to start a phase three uh, trial program using a monoclonal antibody that targets the so-called CD40 ligand. Uh, and this is a, a, a drug called Frexalimab. Um, and I presented the phase two results, which were outstandingly positive uh, at the CMSC meeting in Denver uh, in May. And uh, I've put a link to that um, meeting so you can read about those results at the end of the newsletter. But the reason why this is so important is because CD40 and CD40 are really co important co-stimulatory molecules that tell the immune system there's a danger signal and to have an immune response to it. So if you block this interaction between CD40 and CD40 ligand, then the signal that goes via the so-called T-cell receptor and the MHC, the antigen presentation, becomes a tolerizing signal, okay? And it tells the immune system to ignore this. And so the question is, will long-term or even intermediate-term treatment with Frexalimab allow the immune system to be re-educated? Will it switch off all autoimmune reactions and reset the immune system so MS is not there? <clears throat> and we would call this re, you know, reintroduction of tolerance. And this is a really, really important question because from an immunological perspective, it'll be like curing MS, you know, it's switching off autoimmunity, retolerizing people to the antigens that drive MS will be an immunological cure. And so we need to think about how we look for this immunological cure because I don't think we would want to, you know, you know we don't want to leave people in theoretically on the on an anti-CD40 ligand, Frexalimab, for the rest of their life, because it does also have a role to play in fighting infections, tumors, immune surveillance of tumors, et cetera. There is this potential that you'll get complications from a chronic immune suppression on this drug. So maybe you can just use it for a, a, a period of time, say two, I don't know how many years, look for the signature of immune tolerance, immunological cure, and stop the drug and see what happens. <clears throat> so this is a really, really important concept is what and how do we define an immunological cure in MS. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours thinking about this and I suspect I will spend thousands of hours and so if anybody's got any ideas you know please come forward there's a, a comment section on this uh, newsletter you can make comments. Now coming to this question about stigmatizing. <clears throat> yes I agree MS is a stigmatizing disease uh, um, but not diagnosing someone because it's stigmatizing is also you know, a fallacy, you know. Now, they, now that we have treatments for asymptomatic MS, and if, we have, and if we do treat people early, very early, before they develop symptoms, we will prevent any damage from occurring. <clears throat> um, you know, now that we know that we can modify this disease from the very early stages, why wouldn't we want to treat people early? I'm not saying we should go out there and scan the whole population and diagnose all the risk patients we can. I'm saying if we do find somebody with risk, why would we ignore it? 
we would obviously have to have a discussion with them, try and uh, risk profile them and say, you know, we're putting you on a treatment X because we want to protect your brain and spinal cord and, uh, and give you the better, best chance of getting to old age with a healthy brain. Um, the other question is cure. So if we did a cladribine trial and got a cladribine license, which is what I'd want to do, you know, I'd want to lead or at least kickstart a, a radiologically isolated syndrome or a cladribine trial. Let's say when you treated risk patients, 75% went into long-term remission and, and fulfilled our definition of a cure. Uh, whereas if you did CIS, it drops to about 50%, and I assume if you go to relapsing disease, it'll drop to 25%. <clears throat> you know, so the, the problem about MS is the longer you wait, the more difficult it gets to, to reestablish uh, a tolerance or, or reset the immune system. So if this does pan out that you know the, the earlier you treat, uh, the better people do, why wouldn't you want to have a treatment uh, early? And this is what, what will drive the diagnostic criteria, not the fact that it's stigmatizing. And also, if you cure people of MS, the disease doesn't become stigmatizing. You know, so we've got to move with the times, you know, um, um, you know, society and culture adapts to new information. And I'm sure they will adapt to the fact that MS is treatable early uh, and it won't be stigmatizing. I mean, one of the things I have... Um, put onto the newsletter is that, and it's a really important point, is about 10 to 15% of people with radiologically isolated syndrome don't have a clinical attack. They come, they present much later, maybe a decade later, with primary progressive MS. And so what they've done is missed out on the relapsing phase. Uh, and then they've also missed out on that decade where they could have been treated uh, to protect them from pre presenting with primary progressive disease. So we mustn't forget that a proportion of patients with radiologically isolated syndrome are destined to become PPMS. Uh, and once you get PPMS, uh, although we can slow down the worsening, it's very difficult to modify the disease um, significantly. You know, once they've entered that phase and lost reserve, um, you know, they often programmed or primed to continue to get worse. So I think for that reason alone, <clears throat> we should be much more proactive about treating radiologically isolated syndrome, or at least putting people into trials <clears throat> and not ignoring it uh, because giving them a label of asymptomatic MS will be stigmatizing. Anyway, I've, I've put the link here at the very end um, to my CMSC newsletter breaking on the breaking news one, which will go into much more detail about the Frexalimab results. And I have to say, if there are, you know, there are three or four things that excite me in MS. One is MS prevention. <clears throat> one is antivirals for EBV. Uh, the other one is targeting EBV with more aggressive therapies like CAR T cells. But Frexalimab um, is one of the most exciting uh, uh, developments in MS in, in, the, in the last year or two. So this is going to be a potential game changer for how we think about treating multiple sclerosis. Okay, I'll stop there. Um, and just another nudge um, to subscribe. If you're not a paying subscriber, every little bit helps. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you.